I spent a lot of my childhood summers in northwest London. This was in the days where the TV had five channels and the only internet access was dial-up. You basically just had to make your own fun. And there was this one thing that, as a kid, I remember getting this endless small bit of entertainment from. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, all the time. The wrong zebra crossing. That's my Uncle Joe. He's a little bit older than me, so his memories are a bit clearer. But what he's talking about is Abbey Road. It's this long road that runs from Kilburn on one end to St John's Wood on the other. And it's also famous for being home to Abbey Road Studios and being the namesake of the Beatles' Abbey Road album. The famous cover, you've probably seen it, they're all on a zebra crossing outside of the studios. And it's become this big thing for Beatles fans to go to this crossing and then recreate that cover. (laughs) You just see these people doing the peace sign and all of that kind of stuff and stopping traffic. But it's a really long road, right? So the people me and Joe used to get a kick out of watching with the ones stood on the completely wrong zebra crossing, literally taking pictures on some any random insignificant patch of road. Because there's loads of traffic because of people walking up on the actual zebra crossing, you'll watch them walk up the road and then see the zebra crossing and then feel a fool. This was the funniest thing to me as a kid. But time goes on. Stuff like that starts becoming more of just a nuisance, really. Uh, It used to be very, very funny, but now it's just, uh, I'm trying to get somewhere and they're just walking on this zebra crossing because of some picture that was taken years ago. So in my honest opinion, I hate it. (laughs) So Joe isn't a fan, but I moved to Liverpool a few months ago, obviously home to the Beatles, and I was feeling a little homesick, a little nostalgic, and then... I'm wandering about around the Baltic Triangle and I see this mural of the Abbey Road crossing in life-size proportions so it looks real almost. Like with the right camera angle you could stand in front of it and look like you'd taken a picture at the real crossing in London. It brought back all of those childhood memories that I hadn't thought about for a while and it made me feel like I was a little closer to home. It's amazing what you can find when you're not looking for it. And that sentiment is really what this episode is about. I want to tell you a story about John Lennon and how something he found, something he discovered that he wasn't even looking for, ended up preventing the story of one of Britain's most interesting black figures from being lost and forgotten. I'm Verizo, and you're listening to Search History. Like I said, I'm in Liverpool now, so... I'll begin at the Beatles story, a museum experience for all of your Beatles desires. I'm Martin King. I'm the senior manager of the Beatles story, which basically means I I run the business. Okay, it's 1966 at the height of Beatlemania and the Beatles have decided to stop touring. And there's all these question marks like, are they going to stop for good? Does this mean the end? Well, everyone's nattering. An album is brewing an album that will go on to become Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. From 66 onwards, pretty much the fifth Beatle was that Abbey Road studio. Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is 1967. And I remember it. I I remember it. I was at school. I, I, I remember it because, very strangely, a teacher played it to us, which was... Just unknown. Why, why was a, um, a an album of pop music being played to, to, to a classroom? And it was because it was so culturally important. 
The Beatles have been holding the studio just experimenting, really, with their producer George Martin. Experimenting with sound, tape loops, all kinds of new audio manipulation, taking styles from other genres and cultures to create this psychedelia album under their new Sgt Pepper alter ego. It was Paul's idea. He had had very organised and, and had got some of the music all set out. John, less organised and rather more last minute. And then, last minute Lennon, he stumbles across inspiration in the most unexpected of places during a lunch break. 31st of January 1967, I can be as specific as that. Um, the Beatles were in Kent, in a place called Seven Oaks. They were filming a promotional video for Strawberry Fields Forever. Uh, and Tony Bramwell, who was actually directing the film, and John Lennon went into an antiques um, store that was near the hotel they were staying in. Uh, and one of the items that, that aroused the interest was a show bill. Uh, let's call it a poster, but a circus poster. Is that a piece of Victoriana? The show bill is bizarre, but in the best kind of way. So it's got two sketches, one person hanging upside down in a circus ring, and the other in a strongman costume, chest all puffed out. And the description says, the grandest night of the season. There was a, a Victorian poster for a circus. It's uh, from 1843. John's interest really came from the words on the poster. And John bought it. So the poster is sitting up in John's house. And it's the words, right? The words through hoops over garters and lastly through a hogshead of real fire all at Pablo Fank's Circus Royale. Like, are you sold? I'm pretty sold. Um, obviously it sold John, and then Paul as well. One day, Paul visited, and in an act of cooperation, although most people credit the song very much to John, that's where they used the lyrics from that poster, almost verbatim, in creating the song. That song then becomes Being for the Benefit of Mr Kite, of the Sgt Pepper album. And the lyrics are literally stripped straight from this poster. It's here where I'm going to suggest you pause, go listen to the song and the lyrics, and then come back to the rest of the episode. Like, just do it. Trust me on this one. The first 30 seconds of it, at least. Okay. Are you back? Cool. So now you know what I mean about bizarre in the best kind of way. Last Minute Lennon was into it too. It appealed to both him and Paul that the uh, poster would use the word Somerset rather than somersault because it was an old dialect word for somersaults. It, it appealed and he ran with the ball, so to speak. He actually used the words mostly verbatim but created a song around it. The show built has all of these incredible performers doing circus acts. Mr Henderson on the trampoline, Mr. Kite for who this event is being held up on a tightrope and all to take place in Rochdale just outside Greater Manchester in the name of Pablo Fank Circus. The names alone conjure up all these vaudeville ideas about circus performance. They are choosing names. So Pablo Fank is such an exotic name. It's a mysterious name. It almost begs. Oh, now, Google it. You didn't couldn't Google it then. Who is Pablo Fank? And it, it, in fact, was the name of the first black circus proprietor in the UK, which in itself is a fascinating history. 
Wait, 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 wait. Did we hear that right? The first black circus proprietor in the UK. Huh? I mean, like, I could be wrong, but surely there can't be that many black circus proprietors in the UK in general, let alone back in the 1800s. Of course, now I'm desperate to know more about this guy. Pablo Fank, whose circus it was, was a famous equestrian performer as well as a, a circus owner. So we know that Pablo Fank was born in Norwich. We know that he died in Stockport in 1871. Uh, we, we also know in 1843 he was in Rochdale with this show, which was for the benefit of Mr Kite. Uh, so they're very specific things we can research. So this is what Martin King could tell me about the man. And then I followed his suggestion and I go to Google to see what I could find out about the life of Pablo Fank. His date of birth is kind of a point of contention among historians, but I think it's safe to say he was born somewhere between 1796 and 1810 in Norwich and was known as William Darby back then. At some point in his younger life, he crossed paths with this notorious circus proprietor, a guy called William Batty. But William Batty was also this skilled equestrian and he took little William Darby under his wing and showed him this circus way of life, basically. Young Darby, as Pablo was advertised as back then, became a rope walker in Batty's touring circus. And he also performed equestrian stunts on horses like Batty did himself. A skilled performer requires a name with a bit more pizzazz, right? A bit more magic to it. The kind of name you might want to write a song about. So, William Darby changed his name to Pablo Fank, and Pablo was, by all accounts, pretty great at what he did. So he's this black man on this black mare in a black top hat, wowing 19th century Victorian circus goers with all of his incredible tricks. In 1847, the Illustrated London News does a write-up of his performance and says that his feet of the menage has proved very attractive and worthy of graphic commemoration. And then they've actually drawn a picture of him doing his circus tricks. Pablo wasn't just good on a horse. He was incredible, like really, truly incredible, more than good enough to have a circus of his own. So that's what he ended up doing. He started with just two horses. He set up shop in Wigan and he began a touring show under his new name. This show went everywhere all across England and Scotland and even over to Ireland as well and he ran this circus for more than 30 years or something and his son became an equestrian too it was a whole family affair now okay so my thing with search history is I like to look at stories from the past and see how they're relevant to now and as cool as Pablo's story is as more that I kept reading I kept thinking to myself could this even happen today? If I think of equestrians today, my mind goes to Princess Anne and Zara Phillips, like members of the royal family taking part. And I think of our very white Olympics equestrian team. I have this conception in my head of horse riding as being just, just not a black thing. And I don't think it's a reach to say that horse riding has this image of being a sport for upper middle class white Britons. Like, not for me definitely not for someone like me um but i'm willing to be ignorant about that and i decided the only way to find out if i am truly being ignorant is to to go out and get on a horse myself 
there's one problem. I have this joke that I don't trust animals that collude with the state, but the truth is I'm really, really scared of horses. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember you. Uh, do you remember that Shetland pony across the road from Sally's house? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the horse was a bit weird and then you fell off. And I remember watching that and being like a little bit scared, but then as soon as I got back on the horse, I was fine. I have these cousins who used to live on a farm in the Midlands. So they had cows, chickens, dogs, everything. And horses too, like as if it was totally normal. So sometimes summers could be Abbey Road watching tourists, but other times it could be farms and countryside. And I guess during one visit, someone thought it would be cute to put me on a Shetland pony. Like my hair was braided, the pony's hair was braided. I got the logic, but it charged. I had no control. I wasn't hurt, but it just certified for me that, nah, this isn't my thing. But Joe, who'd come to visit with me during this particular summer, has slightly better memories. Yeah, I think I was about 13 or 14. And uh, yeah, I just remember getting on it. And then your mum being like, oh, you've got such a good seat. Look how good your seat is. And then that kind of gave me a lot of confidence. So I'm mixed race, my farming cousins are white, and then Joe and I are black. So the two of us were kind of odd transplants in the Midlands farmland community. And because he was there too, I wanted to know what his experience of it was. I just kind of felt a bit weird. I was just like, someone's going to tell me to get off this in a minute because <laughs> I'm not really allowed to be on a horse. That's probably the biggest thing that I remember is that. Uh, yeah, I just never had access to, to that and never thought I ever would get access to it. So it kind of just was never, like obviously I'd seen horse riders and cowboys and that kind of stuff, um, but never really thought of myself as a horse rider. <laughs> when you went back to school or back to London, do you remember telling people that you'd gone horse riding? Yeah, yeah, I was telling everybody. I was like, yeah, I sat on a horse and nobody believed me. Everybody just thought that I was like telling a lie. But I definitely remember coming back to school and being like, yeah, I was, uh, I was trotting along, went on the road as well. Was it, a, yeah, was I, it a weird thing to have been doing over summer? Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, because like I said, it was just never on the radar. Definitely not as a little boy or a, a teenager or anything like that. That was kind of a thing that you saw in the movies or maybe rich people, like all the posh rich kids did who went to that high game hats that they might go horse riding at the weekend or whatever. It was just a, a totally new experience, but I definitely remember feeling pretty free once I was on there. Free. I like that word. And it made me wonder if that's what horse riding meant to Pablo Fank too. The times when he began travelling across the country with his performance was only around a decade after the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833 came in, which abolished slavery across the British Empire. Living in the immediate aftermath of the slave trade, it can't have felt like a very free environment for, for black people to be living in. But there Pablo was, travelling the country with his own business. And that that's kind of inspiring to me. I mean, how could it not be? Um, and so spurred on by this, I did sign up for a horse riding lesson. I was still a bit too scared to go alone, so I brought a more accustomed mate to come with me. Hey, Hev. Hey. My name's Heather. Um, I work for Black Girl Festival and I work in education. A little birdie told me that when you was a kid, you went horse riding. I did go horse riding. What was that like? 
Brilliant. I love horses. I love horse riding. One of my friends was really obsessed with horses and I think she actually used to rent a horse. You know, like you can pay to have your own horse at the stable. She like shared a horse with someone so she would be at the stables all the time. And she knew and the horse. And she got me into horses. Everyone's birthday, we would book a, a horse riding day and so like any birthday that came up, we would all go horse riding together. Heather and so we set off. Today we went to the Lee Valley Riding Centre and we went horse riding. It was brilliant. And I want to go again now. <laughs> Lee Valley Riding Centre is in East London. I was proper stressing out beforehand, partly because of the whole, like, scared of horses thing, but also just because of this anxious feeling that they were going to look at me and Heather dressed in tracky bottoms and Doc Martens and think, what in the world are these two black girls doing here? We walked in and we put our stuff in the locker and then we got our riding hats on on our huge heads and obviously had to change our hairstyles okay so this was the first thing that made me think so heather has dreadlocks i have an afro forcing helmets over all of that hair is a task i had to retie my afro puffs like three different times to get them out of the way and we both still ended up having the biggest helmet sizes and then we got our riding shoes because you need a shoe with a heel to stay in the stirrups and then we went in and jumped on some horses me and Hev were by far the tallest there, meaning that we got the biggest horses. Mine was called Chunky. Uh, Heather's was Cassie, Carrie, Cassie. I think it was Cassie. So Heather got onto Cassie first, and then I got onto Chunky. As soon as I was in the saddle, I felt my whole body tense, which is not what you're supposed to do at all. You're supposed to just trust the horse. Like this guy, he doesn't know me. I don't know him. It takes me time to warm up to people. Maybe Chunky's the same. And now I'm just expecting this guy to let me sit on his back for half an hour. Like, nothing about that felt natural to me at all. It's quite scary because it is an animal and you're literally riding on the back of an animal. But I also feel quite guilty because I don't know if it was just today. The horse I was riding, I didn't feel was big enough for me. So I felt really heavy and like I was crushing her back. And she was quite reluctant to move sometimes. So I feel like she as well was thinking, this bitch is too heavy for me. (laughs) My horse was also a bit off. Like really into sniffing the backside of Heather's. I was scared he might just flip out and start running. The whole time I was doing meditation techniques, like telling myself to breathe, telling myself not to grip so tightly, telling myself not to clench my legs in case they cramped up and Chunky took it as an instruction and just started galloping or something. Um, meanwhile, Heather was having a completely different experience. It didn't, it's, I can't even say it came flooding black. I already knew what I was doing. I'd vividly been imagining horse riding for the last couple of days because I've been so excited. <laughs> but, By the end of the session, I can't lie, like, I was really feeling it. I started to let go and realise how to trust Chunky and trust that this animal had no intention of causing me harm, it's not really worth its time, and it felt good. I felt just like Heather, I was like, yeah, let's let's go do this again. And of course, nobody made me feel like I wasn't going to be there. Walking around the grounds, I passed people from all ethnicities, so I definitely wasn't the odd one out. So where had the fear come from? Like, why had it taken me this long to get back on a horse? When I asked Hev and Joe why they'd never pursued horse riding past childhood, despite actually enjoying it, unlike me, um, their answers were pretty similar. 
if someone had asked me in all all of that time, do you want to go horse riding? I probably would have said yes, but no one has asked me, and I've never really thought about it. Definitely something that I would do if it was easily accessible and it was uh, something that was available to me. I would definitely like to do it probably once or twice a month. Like, who's going to take them? They both lived in the city after all, and it's not just the image of horse riding as a posh thing that means black people are getting put off horse riding. It's that even if they do get a little interest. It's an incredibly expensive and specific hobby to get into. It requires access to stables, riding gear, safe environments to learn, things that aren't easy to come across if you're not from a high-income family or if you're a kid living in an inner-city area. So even just very basic socioeconomic factors like countryside areas being less ethnically diverse than cities and cities being impractical environments to have and maintain a stables creates much smaller margins of opportunity for black kids to come into contact with horses. It's not like with Pablo Fank, where he was offered tutelage by a very successful equestrian from a very young age, from childhood, which allowed him that regular access to horses necessary for his career to flourish. And I kept thinking, what would it look like today if you could take a kid who may not otherwise have access to horses and give them regular chips to a stables. Would we have our own modern-day Pablo Fank, perhaps? It's one of the most prestigious events in the racing calendar, Glorious Goodwood. But today, there's one jockey bucking all the stereotypes. Khadija Mella is just 18. I first heard of Khadija Mella's story last summer. Like, she's, she's so cool. So... She'd been making history as the first Muslim woman to ride in a horse race in the Magnolia Cup and then straight after made history again by becoming the first Muslim woman to also win. This was doubly impressive to me because she was only 18 years old when it happened. I had achieved nothing by 18. I hadn't even managed to finish school. And also because the girl was from Peckham. I lived in Peckham for all of my adult life before I came to Liverpool and there were not horses about... So how did Khadija, at such a young age, become this incredible race-winning jockey? I spoke to Julian White, one of the trustees of Ebony Horse Club, where Khadija actually learned to ride, to find out more. Hi, um, my name is Julian White. Um, I ride and train horses for a living, freelance. We had this conversation in a cafe called Farm Girl. It's a little, little joke from me. Um... So the audio is a little noisy in parts, but Julian is also a very successful equestrian himself, and I was interested in hearing more about his own personal journey. I started riding when I was six. Um, I was adopted into a white family um, from the age of three months. My parents already had two girls of their own. Then they adopted me, then my brother, who's not my real brother, but he's also black. And then my younger sister, who was white and in a wheelchair, so we were a bit of a, a mixed bag. Julian was always into horse riding. As a child, when other kids might have posters of pop bands or celebrities on their wall, Julian had horses. My parents were quite fed up of me talking about horses and ponies all the time, um, having to stop a car to look at a pony or running across the road to stroke a pony. So they said, we'll send him for riding lessons and it'll be a passing phase. I'm now 52. (laughs) It still hasn't passed. (laughs) Julian, like Khadija, like Pablo even, 
has also been heralded as a first for the equine industry. He was the first black horse judge of the very prestigious Dublin Horse Show. And as someone whose life is horses, for who is clearly written in the stars that they were meant to be an equestrian, I was curious if he still felt anxieties over being the first, so to speak. Uh, it was it was a it was a big deal actually. I can remember when the letter came through the post and I opened it and I saw the RDS sign on it. I automatically, without even thinking about it, I thought, "Oh, um, they're asking me to do more work for the Riding for the Disabled Society because I do a bit of that um, with through a friend of mine." And then when I opened it and I read the Royal Dublin show, I just suddenly my heart sank. <laughs> Most people would have leapt with joy, thinking, oh my God, this is amazing. My heart sank, thinking, I, I just don't know if I can do this. Because it's, it's huge. The Royal Dublin Horse Show is a big show, and it would be a big thing for a black person to be the judge there. So I did think about it and I phoned um, a very good friend of mine and I said to her, I don't think I can do this. I've just got this letter and blah, blah, blah. I explained to her. She said, what do you mean you can't do it? She said, you're a trustee of the Ebony Horse Club. You're given an opportunity to do this and for those children to see that, you know, you can stand up and do it and almost shine a light for a way. She said, you've got no choice but to do it. She said, call me back when you've accepted and she hung up on me wow. <laughs> so I thought okay <laughs> so I I did and, and then how was the actual the event itself did you feel on the day the same sort of concerns uh, that you had before I that? was absolutely terrified I was terrified I uh, I walked around that showground so I'd like the back of my hand I was trying to get as many things out of the way as, as possible and it actually, after the first first class was done on the first day, it was it was all right. It was it was okay. I sort of arrived. <laughs> Everybody was 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 lovely, lovely. The team, the stewards, all the other people were fantastic. I mean, it was an unbelievable experience. I wondered if Julian had witnessed a change in the horse world during his time in it, like whether he thought doors were opening wider for the younger generation. And it seemed like kind of a double-edged sword. I'd say there's a lot more opportunities now. There's certainly a lot more colleges. So these colleges are important because it gives young riders qualifications, like numbers against their name, which Julian says riders need now if they want to make it in this profession. On the other hand, there's less opportunity to work your way up in more traditional ways. You can't do what I did and what most of people of my generation and above have done and that is just go and work in a yard and start from the bottom and work your way up and it, it has it has shifted in that sense it's, it's quite a struggle if you don't have a connection or some form of finances it is quite it is still a little bit difficult i'd say but um there are opportunities there and this is where my interest in ebony horse club comes in so it's an equestrian club in Brixton, right in the heart of South London, which is just not where you'd expect a horse club to be. I've been involved with Ebony for many years. 
Um, we didn't have a site. We now have a site. And uh, we have nine stables. We have a little school classroom. We have the hay barn and the feed room and the tech room. And we've got nine ponies there. And we have an arena and little turnout paddocks. And so basically it started off um, by one woman's vision um, called Ross Spearing, who started by taking children for riding lessons gosh, this must be nearly 20 years ago, I'd imagine, um, in a minibus, driving them to Dalwich or to Wimbledon, to Richmond and uh, inner-city children, not necessarily just black children, and it grew, grew from there. This is what makes Ebony Horse Club so special. So one woman, Ross Spearing, sought to answer my question herself. Like, if I bring kids that wouldn't usually have access to horse riding to the horses, what's the outcome? What will that outcome look like? And that thought has now snowballed into this entire club. You have to be a child to join Ebony Horse Club between the ages of 8 to 18 and from the local area. And Julian says the outcomes of Ebony have been positive in all kinds of ways. It helps the children come off the estate out of gangs, knife, gun crime, and just shows them a different opportunity of life. There is a whole different world out there and we are just one other little pocket of that which is equestrianism. It's absolutely amazing and we support them all the way through. They can come to us from the age of eight and they don't just finish with us at the age of 18. If you know, a lot of them go on to Plumpton College or go into racing, as many of them have, and we support them through that as well. As if they need our support, we are there, that there is no cut-off point. I've been approaching this whole subject as, you know, how do we make the next black equestrian superstar? Or how do we get a diversity of individuals in the equine industry from all backgrounds? But speaking to Julian made me realise I could have been thinking more about the benefits of horse riding, not as an individual pursuit, but as a community practice. Although Ebony does produce incredible riders like Khadijah and help a lot of kids go into equestrian careers, that's not all that it's about. I, I wouldn't know who is from what school, from what area. You you just don't. They all come together and it's an incredible how the horses pull them in and they work as a team. Because when you're working in yards like that, you do have to work as a team. And we have a lot of children from all different backgrounds and, and it's brilliant how they communicate with each other, support each other and make and have made and continue to make great friendships. Mm. But on top of that, a lot of them who then haven't necessarily carried on with horses, but it's given them the focus and the somewhat also communication skills, teamwork, the ability to actually, and bravery, to pursue what it is that they want to. Whether they want to go into theatre, we had one boy who was amazing in theatre and a dancer, and, and he's followed through through with that. I think it just it gives them such good guidelines of timekeeping, caring, caring in the community, teamwork, all, all that sort of responsibility. I mean, they have to take responsibility for a pony, everything like that. And it's, it's, it's great. It's, it's very good for them. And it's not, you don't have to come to Ebony and just be involved in equestrianism. It can be a stepping stone for anything, just within life. And I think this community aspect is a key value of Pablo Fank's legacy too. His name will continue to be sung throughout history thanks to last-minute Lennon's songwriting, and perhaps many will shog off the words as nonsense ripped from an antique poster. But really, that song, it's about a benefit. 
an event that Pablo Fank orchestrated for the benefit of Mr. Kite, a fellow performer late of Well Circus, because retired circus acts didn't have pensions or retirement funds. Or say if a performer was injured in a trick gone wrong, someone would have to raise money for the health costs. Or if it went seriously, seriously wrong, for burial costs and to make sure the families left behind were supported. Pablo would hold these events alongside his regular circus shows to make sure that his community remains healthy, uplifted and safe. That nobody was left behind in the dark. And it's that kind of community spirit that I see in Ebony Horse Club too. And it's made me realise that if there's one thing that I can take away from Pablo's story is that although it's important to celebrate the firsts, of course it is, especially in professions that have historically been dominated by people from a ruling class or ethnicity, is that as much as that's important, we have to acknowledge people for also just keeping the door open, for making it easier in whatever small ways, for the seconds, for the thirds, for whole entire communities who might otherwise not get a chance to come through after. I would definitely like to do it properly once or twice a month. I, I say, I say that. I guess it also comes with you got to learn to look after the horse and all that kind of stuff. So there was something different about when I was younger because it was like we changed our shoes and we we groomed her. And it just felt like a slightly deeper connection, and, and I think that for me when I was younger was important. Thank you to Martin King from the Beatles story to Joe Sheary and Heather Barrett for reliving their horse riding memories with me, and to Julian White and Sue Collins from Ebony Horse Club for helping make this episode. If you want to donate to Ebony or find out more about them, their info will be linked on my website, varaizo.com, with further sources I used to make this episode. Shout out to Azadi MP3 for the theme. If you enjoyed this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend, support your local farmers, and see you next time.